You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So let's talk home construction, because you guys know, I know a lot about home construction. Not. They say that when you're building a new home or a building, that the foundation is everything. The, the guys from this old house say the foundation is how a house has a chance to get old. I like that, right? The, a, how, a foundation is how a house has a chance to get old. Tom Silva says, without a good foundation, you're sunk. Bad foundations make homes, but not old homes. But a good foundation ought to last generations. Foundations do more than just hold a house above ground. They, they keep the water and bugs out. They keep the heat in. They keep the house stable when the ground moves. And the ground does move even when we don't feel it. Making a solid foundation is about more than just digging a hole and pouring in concrete. You have to know about the water table and the soil condition, and you have to set the forms well, those, those boards that hold the concrete in place while it dries. Can you hear the metaphors dripping from this? And you have to vibrate the foundation before the concrete sets so the holes in the air get knocked out. That means you, you knock those, those forms, those boards, with a hammer before the concrete dries so you can knock out all the extra air, make sure everything settles and as dense as possible. Any builder will tell you that the smallest mistakes in the foundation only magnify as the building gets built. <laughs> as you go upward. It might seem like a surface that is unlevel by just a quarter inch over 2,000 square feet won't matter, or that a couple of cracks in the concrete won't matter. After all, nobody even sees the foundation. You can always correct it, square things up somewhere else in the building. They have a term for that kind of attitude. The term is compounding defects. Do you hear the metaphors dripping from this? Compounding defects, it means that mistakes grow. So if you let something ride on the foundation, it can show up as a leaky roof or as cracks in the walls. Termites can get through cracks in the concrete. Moisture erodes the structure. So here's the point. Solid, good foundations matter, and they only become more important as we build on them because if the foundation is off, everything else feels it. So if on this Easter morning you've wondered why your faith has been shaking for the last couple of years, it's possible that there was something in the foundation that wasn't set correctly. So I want to test your foundation. What is your gospel, the foundation on which your faith stands? Do you have a foundation for life that will hold when the wind blows and the rains come and the groundwater starts to seep in and when the ground itself settles? Do you have a foundation that can weather all of that? What is the gospel that puts you in this room or on this screen today? What's the gospel? So I want to share a gospel with you given to us by Paul when he writes to the Corinthian church. It's a remarkably simple gospel, 
more a story than a plan or a road or laws or a set of principles or a culture or a lifestyle. The, the gospel, according to Paul, is, is the story of what happened to Jesus. It's the story of what happened, the story we receive. You don't make it, you receive it. And it has the power, its own power, to transform the world. So let's look at the gospel according to Paul. Last eyewitness to the risen Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The best way to engage the message is with the Bible, something to write on, something to write with. And once you've got your Bible, if you'll just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start at the very beginning of the chapter. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's the gospel. And Paul puts it together in exactly as many words as it takes to build a solid foundation. So look again at verse 3. He begins with this, Christ died for our sins. I want you to hear the emphasis in this statement. He died for our sins. Not as a victim of our sins, not because he was mad at us, but out of his desire to see us move beyond the things that breed death in us. We mentioned this last week. I'm repeating it because this is an important point. Listen, we want to say it was my sin that put Jesus on that cross. And it is true that if sin was the point of the cross, it should have been me up there. If sin is the point, I should have been the one who died because I'm the one who sinned. I'm pretty good at sinning. But it's not our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. But it was God's love that put him there. God's love caused him to take on our flesh and blood. God's love caused him to defend your life and restore you to wholeness. God's love caused him to step up and give his life for yours. And this isn't hard for us to understand. We do it every day. We do things all the time out of love for people who have messed up. I don't even know how many times I've stood in courtrooms to advocate for people, some of you among them. <laughs> I won't ask you to raise your hand. Some of your children, my own family, I've stood, who have really screwed up. I've known the circumstances, I've heard the stories, I've grieved the sin, and yet knowing all of that, I've stood up in courtrooms to say that there is more to a person than the worst thing they've ever done. I've testified to what I know to be true of a person, what I know is possible, and what I've seen when a person is not at their worst, but at their best. And I go and I stand for people, not because of what they've been accused of, but because I love them, because I know them as a child of God, because no one should have to stand alone, because the last bad thing a person did shouldn't be the last word over their life. I don't stand and beg for the judge to 
skip the consequences or ignore the problem. I stand as a witness to the fact that this person doesn't exist in a vacuum, that they are part of a community that cares what happens to them, that there is something redemptive here, something worth redeeming. And I stand because I believe anyone judging the situation and making a decision about consequences ought to have the whole story. And for those of you who have been on the receiving end of those courtroom moments, when you've stood before a judge and desperately wanted them to see there's more to your life than cooking meth or shoplifting or, or whatever your soon-to-be ex-spouse is saying about you, who have been grateful for someone to stand with you and for you and tell the bigger half of your story, I hope you can access that memory right now so you can feel the depth and the breadth and the substance of what God has done for us. God on the cross is God standing for us, knowing us, loving us, seeing us within the context of our created design and believing us, believing you to be worth it. That moment when Christ died for our sins was God believing for us, in us, even if we don't believe it for ourselves. And even if we don't believe in him, God speaks up for us. We have someone right now, right now, in the presence of God the Father, sticking up for us. Why? Because God loves people. Jesus proves this. From his life, I can tell God has great patience and tolerance for all kinds of people. He eats with broken people and touches gross people. Because in the kingdom of God, people are not the problem. People are the prize. Christ died for our sins, and he was buried. When we say the ancient creeds, the, the, the statements that profess the, the heart of our faith, this line is always included. He was crucified, dead, and buried. So why does being buried matter? Well, first he was buried because he was dead. <laughs> you don't bury living beings unless you're a psychopath. We bury dead people. Jesus was buried because he was dead. The kind of dead that gets buried, that everyone involved recognized as dead. Dead enough to bury. Which means, because he died for our sins, that our sins were buried with him. Which means the power of sin, the, the power that sin has over my life and yours is dead. That power has been defeated, killed, buried, neutralized. Any power that sin has over our lives now is only the power that we give it. When we give sin its power over us, it's like we've dug it back up, brushed off the dirt, propped it up on a park bench, and proceeded to have a conversation with it, to have a relationship with it as if it were alive. Do you see how crazy that is? It makes me think about a church I was invited to visit years ago, just it was a few years ago, up in the mountains of Tennessee. And when I first got there, the pastor was introducing me around to people, and about every third person who introduced me would say, have you told her yet about Cowboy Coward? 
And no, he hadn't told me about Cowboy Coward, but I figured that must be some children's ministry figure that would show up in the worship space maybe. Maybe at the children's sermon to show children how hard it is to live your life if you're afraid of everything. I think Cowboy Coward would make a great children's ministry thing. But that's not what Cowboy Coward was. He was a real person. He was kind of famous, actually, in the hills of Tennessee, still is. He attended this church where I was speaking, sat on the front row every week with his pet squirrel named Angel, who was on a leash, but who crawled all over him and all over anybody sitting near him during the service. And they had me, the guest speaker, sitting next to him. That's how I know this. I also remember that Angel had something of a crisis of faith in the middle of my message, and she started squealing. That was special. But the kicker with Cowboy Coward was his wife. I was sitting on one side of him, and on the other side was his wife in what looked like an old carpetbagger's bag. He told me this was his wife. He picked her up. It was her ashes sitting next to him. And the bag held them up, introduced me to her. This is my wife, he said. Our whole marriage, she said, that all she ever wanted was for me to sit next to her in church. And I never would. And after she died, I got saved. And I'm in church every Sunday, and she comes with me and sits right by my side, just like she wanted. I don't want to disparage the man, although he gladly tells his own story. You can look him up, Cowboy Coward, Google it. Here's my point. To the extent that we persist in our sin, in the things that breed death in our lives, in the things that create temporary relief or happiness or maybe just numbness, but no long-term joy, to the extent that we prop up what was buried and, and with Jesus and even drag it into church every Sunday with us, we are inviting an unnecessary insanity. Or to the extent that we get down in the grave with it, live among the tombs, go looking, as the angel said to the women at, the, at that first resurrection morning, for the living among the dead, we miss it. We completely miss it. Friends, your sin was buried with Jesus. Receive that good news and leave it there. Don't go looking for the living among the dead. Don't dig it up. Don't lay down with it. There's no life for you there. It has no power. The death of Christ has dealt with sin once and for all, and his burial is like a period at the end of that sentence. It is finished, done. You are now entitled to live as a free person. Thanks be to God. Christ died for our sins, for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. It's as if the whole story of God was waiting for a proper ending, and this is it. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the way, the way Paul puts it. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That phrase, according to the scriptures, is in there so we won't miss the fact that the gospel is the punchline in the fulfillment of Israel's story and God's promises. 
The gospel is not a second story separate from the Old Testament, the hope of all humanity, that we won't all end up with as, as food for worms or worse in hell. The gospel is the second half of that longing that the Old Testament writers expressed over and over again. The gospel answers that longing and completes that story. Resurrection is the grand finale in the story of God. This has been an interesting year for religious people. Do you know Friday, Ramadan, Passover, and Good Friday all fell on the same day, the beginning of Ramadan. All fell on the same day on Friday this year, like a perfect storm. That mix of celebrations has caused a lot of tension and even some violence in the old city in Jerusalem. So I have a friend who lives in Canada, and he and his wife live in a multicultural condo, and he tells me his neighbors come in every flavor, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, every possible variation lives in this one building together. Over the years, they've developed an informal tradition in that building. There's a space in their foyer where the property manager will set up a display acknowledging some of the more important holy days that all the residents observe. So my friend says this, that, that those little displays speak silently of people living together peacefully as neighbors. People who elsewhere in the world, like Jerusalem, might be living as hostile enemies, very tense. Well, one year, the building got a new property manager, and she took on the job of setting up those little displays in the foyer, celebrating the different holy days, and she got most of them right. But then she set up the Easter display. And guess what the Easter display was? Yeah. It's all bunny rabbits and painted eggs. So my friend stopped by the office and asked that the display be changed. He asked why, she asked why, and, and, he, and he told the manager, this is what Easter is really about. He told her the gospel. She had no idea. She was mortified to find out she'd gotten it so wrong. And telling this story, my friend says this, risen is a foreign concept to most people on the planet. Risen is a foreign concept to most people on the planet. He's right about that. Risen is why there are clashes in Jerusalem this weekend. Risen is a foreign concept to most people on the planet. So if you don't get it, you're not alone. But it is a concept we all, every one of us on the face of the planet, need to wrestle through so we can get it. Because risen is how this world and how you personally will ultimately find our peace. Risen is about more than just existing. We get existing. Most of us know how to exist, how to wake up, go to work, pay the bills, take our medications, try not to notice the restlessness within ourselves, keep ourselves alive. That's existing. And we get existing. But risen is more than that. Risen is about life. This was Angela's whole story. Life rests not on our circumstances, but on the fact of Jesus Christ, the risen Christ.
E. Stanley Jones, a 20th century missionary in India, once said, the art of living is the most learned, or sorry, it's the art of living is the least learned of all the arts. He's right about that. Jesus has cut the path from death to life, and he invites us to walk on it. But so often, we veer off that path and try to find life in ways that weren't meant for us. The resurrection, friends, isn't something that happened only to Jesus. It is also something that happens to us. Risen means I now have the ability to learn to live the good life. This is the gospel. And we can trust this gospel because there were eyewitnesses to the, living, to the risen Christ. Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 5. Paul writes that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. These are witnesses to this good news, and we know some of their stories. We know about Thomas, who was in search of something immovable that he could slam his doubts up against, who, when he found it in Jesus, could only confess, my Lord and my God. We know the story of the centurion who stood at the foot of the cross that day Jesus died. A Roman soldier who discovered that the cross is a thin place where heaven and earth collide. Who learned as he witnessed the death of Jesus that the cross does not promise to make life easier. The cross promises to make life real. We know about the women who witnessed the death of Jesus, who saw him buried, who were the first at the empty tomb, who heard the angel announce the good news, who asked them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Go and tell the others. So Mary ran and found the others and preached the first sermon ever preached on the power of the resurrection. She said, I have seen the Lord. And here in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells us that Jesus also appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and to everybody in the upper room. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of his followers at the same time by a head count of just the settings we know about. Something like 600 people witnessed his resurrection, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. And Paul claims himself is the last person to see the risen Christ before those appearances stopped. And so Paul now writes his own story into the gospel. And then, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, Paul takes it one step further. He weaves our stories in. He writes, whether then, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. 
And this is where Paul places you into the story of God. This is what you're invited to believe, the story you're invited to step into, to stand with those 600 witnesses in the first century. Paul will go on from there and put a roof on this story. He will teach us that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and he will tell us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and that one day we will be changed into, the perishable will be clothed into the eternal And what is left between now and then is for us to write ourselves into the story and walk it out. To build on this foundation because this is the one foundation that will hold when Christ comes again and death is swallowed up in victory. Christ died according to the scriptures and he was buried He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There are hundreds of witnesses to this story and billions who have known his transforming power since those first days can attest to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. So how will you respond to that gospel? How will you respond? I want to ask you to stand. I've asked Don Harris and Ann Norton to come to the front so they can pray with those who would like prayer. In our church, we pray for all kinds of things. We pray for salvation, but we also pray healing. We pray for those situations that feel like they're breeding death into our lives. So Don and and, and Ann are both here to pray with you and to pray for you in whatever way will allow you to more firmly grasp the gospel story in whatever way will correct whatever is unlevel in your foundation. Friends, Christ has died and he was buried and on the third day he rose again. And witnesses to that truth can assure us that Christ alone is the way to eternal life. You pray with me, and then you'll be invited to come as you'd like to pray here at the front or to seek prayer from our prayer ministers. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful to you. I am so grateful to you that you came back. (laughs) You died and you were buried, and my sin was buried with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry for the times when I have tugged my sin back up and propped it up and tried to make it live when it breeds nothing but death in my life. I am so sorry, God. What I want to pray now, Jesus, is that you would give me the grace to let dead things stay dead and the courage to let living things live in me and through me. And for anyone in this room who also wants that to be true of their lives, God, I pray that you would do that work right now. Let dead things stay dead and let living things live. Jesus, Jesus, we love, honor, and worship you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, 
We'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.